The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, now I'd invite you to join me as we look to God's Word together for the day. Um, For those of you who are visiting, uh, haven't been familiar what we've been doing. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, 16 chapters that book is, long letter written by the Apostle Paul, and we've just been going straight through it, and we were actually... Uh, set to finish 1 Corinthians 14 today, if you look on your bulletin there, uh, the last passage there. But we're actually not going to do 1 Corinthians 14, uh, and I'll tell you why. God laid something else on my heart this week. It was early in the week. I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday. I can't remember. I was just, anyway, um, listening to the news and staying up to speed and reading the tea leaves and became pretty apparent uh, by Tuesday, I think, or Wednesday, I was convinced that it was where uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who's on the Supreme Court and has been for 28 years, one of the nine members of the Supreme Court, it was pretty apparent how he was going to rule on this upcoming decision, already had been leaking out. Isn't that amazing? So I, I pretty much knew on Tuesday, Wednesday, oh, okay. He's the swing vote. Uh, there's nine Supreme Court justices Whichever way he voted it would be the way the balance tipped, and it was pretty clear he was going to uh, be in favor and support same-gender marriage. In other words, uh, redefining traditional marriage, the way it was going to pan out. And sure enough, so actually as early as Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm thinking, while I'm studying 1 Corinthians 14, very difficult passage there, verse 34 and following, I'm thinking, um, I might have to change my sermon here mid-course this week and address this issue if things go the way I think they're going to go. And so that's kind of how I started thinking. I kept studying First Corinthians 14, but started thinking and praying the other direction as well. What would God have me say? And then uh, Friday, the decision is unveiled, and it's 5-4 to four by the Supreme Court of the United States ruling in favor of same-gender marriage. And at the same time, that undermines the traditional definition of marriage. And so with that, when I heard that Friday morning, I was like, okay, yeah, now I, I think I, I think I really need to address this sooner rather than later. I'll be gone at camp next week, so it wouldn't be for two weeks. And I think this, there's a sense of urgency. And then the next day, I got an email from one of our members asking about, wow, now what do we do? I'm thinking, okay, that's it. This was Saturday morning. Okay, I'm preaching on this tomorrow, Sunday morning. I better start studying. Um, and then about two hours later, after I had already decided to do this, I got an, a letter, an email from John MacArthur that was an open letter, Pastor John, to actually all uh, alumni of the Master Seminary, which is a, like a 30-year history. And I was one of those, and it was an exhortation on Pastor John's part saying uh, this decision was historic. It is unprecedented. We need the voice of God from his word, from shepherds of God everywhere. To address this matter, and you need to tend to your local flock. I'm not going to tell you what to say, but I just feel it's the responsibility of every responsible steward and shepherd to do that. So that just kind of sealed the deal for me. I was like, okay, good. I was uh, going to do this, and this is confirmation from my former pastor. Uh, so that's what we need to do. So uh, today I wanted to talk about, uh, I don't even have a title really, just I guess what God thinks of marriage. Or you could say God's definition of marriage or God's purpose of marriage. And then there's a lot of sub points and corollary points. 
We'll do point, part one today, and then in two weeks we'll follow up with part two. Part two will be very important because for me, part two is going to be the practical application for us as Christians is now what do we do? Now how do we think? Now how do we live and interact in the world? Now how do we uh, interact with people we know? Not just uh, gay people, but people who are heterosexual or whatever, but are still supportive of this decision that came down. There are many, and even many professing Christians, well, that might be surprising to some of you, many professing Christians are celebrating this decision. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are churches all over America celebrating this decision, which I find absolutely mind-boggling. How do we interact with these folks? What do we do now? How do we conduct ourselves? Um, so I, I believe the Bible addresses this issue. Uh, there's an answer from Almighty God. We're going to look at it. Uh, before I get into the specifics of that, and then I was reminded this morning, as I'm, <laughs> the it's not the irony, it's actually could very well have been planned this way, for all I know, that Pride Weekend is this weekend. Started yesterday and today. And the hub of it around the world is San Francisco. That's our backyard. Started yesterday. There's already been one shooting and death as of last night at 6 p.m. And who knows what else is going to go on today. Uh, so we know what they're celebrating. Um, so we're, we're living with it. It's in our face. It's in our neighborhood. It's We rub shoulders with it wherever we go. We've got to have a biblical response. What do we do? So that's the goal as we search God's word together. Heard a lot of questions already from believers. Uh, running the gamut in terms of the nature of the questions. Uh, some theological, some, yeah, some theological, some personal, some societal, some political. Um, and uh, across the board, and so before I get into that, I, I want to run ten things by you to kind of test our thinking, a diagnostic quiz, if you will. Are you ready? You can do it in your own mind or write it down. It's just true and false. I want to give you ten statements. And you do it yourself. Uh, just keep it between you and yourself. And I'll give you ten statements. These are all related to this issue at hand. And then I'll give you the answers after. We'll see how we did. This is to prepare our thinking and examine our thinking and even expose our thinking, which hopefully will give us uh, the ability to clarify issues in our own mind as we go. Okay, so ten questions. They're true or false. Just put a T or an F in your own mind, or you can even write it down. You don't have to write down the question. So here we go. Question number one. Laws in America are based on the majority vote of the American people. Number one, true or false. Laws in America that are made are based on the majority vote of the American people. True or false. Number two. The law established in 1857 here in America saying that blacks were property and not people was a law based on the majority vote of the American people at the time. True or false? I'll say it again. The law established in 1857 in America saying that blacks were property and not people was based on the majority vote of the American people at the time. True or false? Number three. January 22, 1973. The U.S. law that legalized abortion in 1973, that's now binding here in America, was based on a majority vote of the American people. True or false? The law legalizing abortion in 1973 was based on the majority vote and the majority will of the people. True or false? Number four. 
the U.S. law that redefined marriage on June 26, 2015, last week, the binding U.S. law that redefined marriage this week was based on the majority vote of the American people. True or false? Number five, America is a Christian nation. True or false? Number six, America began as a Christian nation. True or false? Uh, number seven, same-gender marriage is a social political and legal issue and not a theological or biblical issue. True or false? I'll read that one again. Same gender marriage, or the issue at hand, is a social, political, and legal issue and not a theological or biblical issue. True or false? Number eight, the Bible does not say anything about a definition of marriage. True or false? Number nine, the Bible does not address same-gender relationships at all. True or false? And then finally, number 10, the church should let the state or the government or politicians and judges dictate and manage and oversee the issue of what marriage is in our country today. True or false? The church should let the state, the government, and politicians dictate, manage, oversee and even define the definition of marriage in our country today. All right, let's go ahead and grade that, uh, grade the quiz. If you said false for all of them, raise your hand. Yippee, put it down. Okay, good. You got 100%. So I want to highlight a couple of these because they're, they can be highly contentious and controversial, even among Christians. Laws in America, this is like political science 101, but you got to know this, uh, especially if you aren't a citizen of the United States of America, and there may very well be some of you that aren't yet. If you weren't born in America, or if you are a citizen of America and you don't even know the basics of how things work in America, it's really important. It's a part of the discussion. But laws in America are based on the uh, majority vote of the American people. Actually, naively, a lot of people think that's true, that the, we're a democracy, which means the majority of the people. And that's how we make laws. That is not how we make laws. That ain't how it happens here in America. At least... Uh, some of the most significant laws aren't made that way. That might surprise you. So technically, America is not a, even a democracy in the strict sense of the term. Um, give you an example. In 2008, Proposition 8 was proposed, and it wasn't a, a divisive proposition at all. It wasn't negatively stated at all. It wasn't a phrase or a statement of derision or prejudice or hatred or bigotry or exclusion at all. All it simply said was marriage is between one man and one woman. That's it. That was Proposition 8. Not very controversial at all. All that was doing was reaffirming what humanity has believed since time began, which I would say was 6,000 years ago. That's all it was. That was Proposition 8. How controversial is that? Marriage is between one man and one woman. That's never been questioned had nothing to do with hatred, excluding anybody, not loving anybody. Another uh, factor there in corollary point is this whole idea of people are saying that the argument here is about uh, depriving people from same-gender relations. That's what this is all about. That is not true at all. By way of reminder, same-gender interactions and same-gender relations 
is not illegal in America. It hasn't been for years, and people have been doing it uh, for years without the government or anybody getting involved. So that wasn't the issue, whether they could do that or not. Same gender relations. The issue this week was about defining marriage, and we can't lose focus of that. It was a definition of marriage. So going back to this statement, laws in America are based on the majority vote of the American people. So that actually came to a vote, Proposition 8, 2008, where 13 million Californians voted on it. Seven million people in California voted for it. Yeah, I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that was atheists voted for it. Christians voted for it. Catholics voted for it. Mormons voted for it. Muslim Americans voted for it. Hindu Americans voted for it. Secular Americans voted for it. Democrat uh, Americans, uh, Californians voted for it. So across the board in terms of people who actually voted for it that make up that 7 million people. So there was a, a very wide representative demographic of people who voted and saying, yes, 7 million people in California saying that, yeah, I agree with that. Marriage is indeed uh, one man, one woman. That has nothing to do with civil unions, whatever. It's totally unrelated. And about 6 million voted uh, against it. And then, so it became technically a part of the Constitution of the state of California. That here in California, uh, we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that was totally legal. That's the way the process goes. Actually, that's the way the Constitution said it should be done. And uh, so basically on that issue, according to the state of California, determining that marriage was indeed between one man and one woman was determined by the majority vote of the people who voted on it. That's the way it should work. And a couple of key factors we need to keep in mind here. The Constitution of the United States of America is not a very long document. I don't know if you've read it recently. You should. You can read it in vain to find anything at all in the Constitution about marriage. Keep that in mind because the, the only job of a Supreme Court justice, there are nine of them, their only job is to look at the Constitution and make uh, a rendering or a decision based on what is delineated in the Constitution, what is clearly in the Constitution. If the issue at hand is not in the Constitution, the Supreme Court justices have no say and they have absolutely no business dealing with that issue. They are supposed to defer that matter to the states. That's called the Tenth Amendment of the Bill of Rights. So anything not in the Constitution is given to each of the 50 states to deal with themselves and their own local uh, state governments and their people. And so when this issue came up and they tried to bring it to a federal level, to the Supreme Court justices, marriage is not in the Constitution, and as a result, 37 states in America were dealing with it themselves independently like they are supposed to according to the Tenth Amendment. And California was one of them. That was totally appropriate. Leave it to the people. That's what the Tenth Amendment is for. That's how it's supposed to work. So when you have, and by the way, the first, I think it was over the course of 10 years, 34 states put a definition of marriage on the ballot to the people, and 34 times in a row, the people of those states voted in favor of traditional marriage, 34 and 0. Kind of gives you a sense of what the people of America think. And then since then, a couple of states actually put it on the ballot and voted against it, and it was very close, like Maryland, which it wouldn't be a surprise in terms of where they are at, or in terms of their politics. But just to show that the American people, in every vote, the majority believes in a traditional marriage by definition, and that's the only issue we're talking about. 
Um, so that's the way it's supposed to work. So 7 million uh, California citizens vote legally. This is what we want in our Constitution. This is what we believe a definition of marriage is. And then 2008, seven years later, over in Washington, five judges overrule, circumvent, usurp the decision of 7 million people living in California. That's what happened on Friday, June 26th. That's called tyranny. It is. It goes by many names. Audacity, arrogance, tyranny, usurpation, abuse of power. It doesn't even matter what the issue is. If 7 million people in California vote this way legally, and the issue isn't in the Constitution, five judges in Washington, by the way, who were never elected and have no accountability, arbitrarily decide, no, I don't care what you 7 million people think in your state. So that that's what happened. Um, now, I wanted to talk about this because I agree with Pastor John MacArthur. Uh, I had determined this, this issue, there is no bigger issue than this issue, the definition of marriage. That's why it needs to be addressed. Uh, there are issues that compete with it in terms of importance, severity, urgency, and before God, uh, it's important. And a couple of them uh, I thought of was in 1857 when the United States Supreme Court, again, nine people, it was nine white guys at the time, in 1857, took a vote and decided, you know what, blacks, they're not, they're not people, they're property. Really? Wow. Where does it say that in the Constitution? Let alone, what does the Bible say? Did you know Moses' wife was black? You can read that in Hebrews. I mean, uh, in uh, Numbers. His wife was black. He was Israeli, dark-skinned as well. And his older sister and his older brother, Miriam and Aaron, they didn't like her for some reason. Maybe because she was black. And they started talking about Moses and his wife behind Moses' back, Aaron and Miriam. <laughs> God got angry. You should read that story in Numbers chapter 12. God got angry. It said he burned with anger. I think two times in Numbers 12. At their hatred, their bias, their prejudice. And then God wanted to wipe out and kill Miriam. But he was gracious. And he only gave her leprosy. And it says that she turned white as snow with leprosy. You like white people? Poof! There you go. She became white as snow with leprosy. And God, and Moses pleaded on her behalf, and then God was gracious again. So the uh, Bible clearly addresses these kind of issues. But anyway, so that vote was 7-2 to two in 1857. So there were two justices that say, no, you can't. But seven, because uh, that was the majority, uh, determined that blacks were not people, but they are property. Therefore, you could trade them, sell them, kill them, beat them, whatever. The Bible says they're made in the image of God. Uh, the the opinion of the people at the time in America, that wasn't based on majority vote. If they took a poll, majority vote probably would have gone in favor of the blacks at the time. We know that from uh, the Union and the Confederate where there were, uh, and that's what it led to the Civil War, where almost 700,000 people were slaughtered. That decision in 1857 
was taken out of the hands of the seven supreme justices and it did go to the people, not by way of vote, but by the way of war that slaughtered 700,000 people in this country. And there were way more people uh, in the Union who were in favor of the freedom of blacks and the recognition that they were more than property than there was in the Confederacy. So this is very similar, where you have nine people dictating something out of the confines of what they are responsible for that affects millions of other people and even intrudes into what God has already decreed on that matter. God decreed that black people and uh, dark-skinned people and white-skinned people and yellow-skinned people and red-skinned people and all people are made in the image of God. That is clear in Scripture. That's what we believe uh, as Christians because it's in the Bible and always has been. And every human being, regardless of the skin color, is made in God's image. They are precious to God. They are uh, sanctified by God. Their life is valuable to take their life, uh, warrants the death penalty. Every human being is sacred, whether they're a Christian or not, regardless of their color of skin. So there's an example of tyranny once again, overstepping their bounds, usurping that which only belongs to God, and that is the opinion of God by virtue of what he thinks about his creation when it comes to people. Uh, so this is on the same par or scale in terms of importance and consequences uh, the decision made this Friday of even that decision called the Dred Scott case in 1857 where blacks were determined to be non-people by seven men in black robes. How ironic. Black robes. Um, then in 1973, some of you were alive at the time, some of you may remember it, another unprecedented, historic, uh, evil, damning, destructive, heinous, Horrible uh, decree was made by the Supreme Court justices, and that was Roe versus Wade when, up to that point, for the most part, America was protecting the life of unborn babies in the womb, which pretty much all throughout history up to that point, people, general humanity, believed that that what was in the womb was alive. It was a human. It had a conscience. The conventional definition up to that time, even from going back thousands of years, was that life began at conception. So in 1973, uh, I think that vote was 7 to 2 as well. Seven justices voted in favor, saying babies are no longer going to be protected in the womb. They can be killed. So two major things were made in that decision. Babies are no longer to be protected while they're in the womb. And then the leading justice who wrote the majority opinion decreed and said that which is in the womb is not a person for the first time ever in legal jargon in American history, and it has stayed ever since then. Just one guy determined in terms of his terminology, the unborn are not persons, therefore they are not protected by the equal rights clause of the Constitution. One man. Does Scripture address this issue? Absolutely, all over the place. That which is in the womb is a person made in the image of God. It's alive. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb. On and on, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, the Bible is just full of that. Uh, Psalm 51 is clear. Psalm 51 verse 5, where David, reflecting on himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that he basically became a person because he took on a sin nature even while yet in his mother's womb, and then in the Hebrew is very specific, and it refers to even the time that he was conceived. From the time of conception, David took on a sin nature as a sinner. And those of you who are mommies or have given birth 
and even the dads who are a part of it, you know as you're touching the tummy and you can feel the kicking and the rustling that's going on, and you know this is your baby. You've even given it a name, and you've already developed a rapport and a relationship with this baby. It's a human made in God's image. So seven people uh, decide to overrule God, and we can slaughter babies now while they're yet in the womb. And just so you know, since 1973, 57 million babies have been slaughtered in America since then. 57 million. Unbelievable. So uh, that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, all the variables are very similar in parallel of the decision, how the decision was made, and the ramifications of the decision are all parallel. And with uh, the view of black people decreed by seven men, uh, with the view of babies not being persons made by seven people, and then five people deciding, you know what, marriage is not between one man and one woman, irrespective of what God has said. So that's what, what I want to talk about. Today, So that's just kind of an overview of the politics involved, uh, how it works. If, you know, if you're incensed by um, the political system and how it works and boy, that, you know, the Supreme Court justices, they didn't do their job or the way they're supposed to and blah, 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 then you, you need to wake up to reality. Don't change your expectations. The United States government, the Constitution, politicians, they aren't your savior. Jesus is. That's it. And God and God alone. Put, do not put your trust in men. Scripture says that very clearly. It's always said that. So that's probably one of the important lessons we need to keep in mind with respect to that. And then we also need to understand what God has to say on a very practical and personal level because we need to be able to respond. Some of you already, I, I've heard this already many times from several of you of in your interactions with people on, on Facebook. And that, you know, all these posts being made and it sounds like the majority of them that are troubling you are Christians, people you know who are Christians, coming out boldly, vociferously on Facebook in favor of the decision that was made. You're like, whoa, many of you share that with me. Christians, really? Should Christians be celebrating this decision? Well, no, absolutely not. Uh, maybe some of those people indeed are Christians and for whatever reason, maybe they're confused. Maybe they don't know the issue. Maybe they're confusing the issues. That's why I was trying to delineate. This issue was about the definition of marriage. Not anything else. Don't confuse the issue. This is not about whether we love people who are different than us. That has nothing to do with it. We are called to love people who are different than us. That's not the issue. It's the definition of marriage at hand. So keep it clear. And then, uh, so a lot of these Christians, for whatever reason, out of ignorance, naivete, rebellion, social relationships, pressure from other friends that they know, um, they have friends that are gay that are nice people. It's very possible. That happens all the time. They're being influenced by a personal relationship rather than what the Bible clearly says. They're losing objectivity. So there's a lot of reasons why that's happening. It could very well be that some people aren't born again at all, and they think they are, and they're professing to be a Christian. Uh, so these folks, uh, so you're interacting with people on a daily basis. Maybe you've got people in your family that are celebrating this. Maybe you've got uh, relatives who are close to you you have to deal with on a regular basis. How do you interact with them? And on and on it goes. So uh, we need to have an answer. We need to have the proper mindset. So with that... I wanted to start uh, just real big picture overview. And uh, and then, like I said, we'll reserve part two to some practical application with it. So let's go ahead uh, to point number one. I've got a few points. We'll see how far we get. Try to make it as practical as possible. And I want you to look at a few Bible verses. Um, so point number one is... I just reiterate it one more time. The decision that was made Friday is about the definition of marriage. 
That's it. And here in America, the definition had been marriages between one man and one woman. America did not make up that definition. No country made up that definition. No man made up that definition. Secular anthropologists and secular sociologists and liberal sociologists who study this thing, they try to tell us, and this is what most of the American universities are being told and believe, if you went to a secular American university, you would be told that marriage is uh, a developing and changing social convention that's actually artificial. And it was created, it's a byproduct of evolution. So 25,000 years ago, Australopithecus turned into a man, a homo sapien. Boom, overnight. Look at honey, I lost all my hair. I walk up right now. And then humans came into being. And there was no marriage. It was a free-for-all. But at some point, through evolution and societal convention and norms, this institution called marriage was developed and fine-tuned until finally, and it changed and had variances, but at some point it became monogamous, one man, one woman. But it wasn't always the case before it, and it shouldn't always be the case after it. And because people change and time changes, we're all evolving, we're going through the process of evolution, and morality is not involved, and God has nothing to do with it. As a result, the definition of marriage should change, will change, needs to change. So says the great educated, erudite anthropologist, sociologist, and that great philosopher and theologian, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, the, com- the comedian lady um, that was in Sister Act. Uh, Thank you, Whoopi. Whoopi Goldberg, who has her own radio show. <laughs> and I listen to Whoopi every once in a while, see what Whoopi's up to. And uh, Whoopi said, she did comment on Proposition uh, 8 in California. She said, we need to reject Proposition 8. Marriage is not between one man and one woman. As a matter of fact, the greatest uh, need and the greatest deed for the good of America, California, and humanity is the abolition of institution marriage of marriage altogether. That's what Whoopi said. And her definition of marriage is it's just a changing, evolving, artificial convention of a few elite people anyway from time to time, culture to culture. So she leaves God totally out of the equation. So that's what I want to address here. Well, really, is that how marriage came to be? It just changed and evolved over time, and then some uh, humans just decided this is what it is, and in their little corner, and it's different in other little corners where they have polygamy and free-for-alls and whatever else, but it's just kind of a Western, white, Republican, Christian thing that we invented and came up with. Really? No, Bible's clear, so let's go ahead and look at it. Point number one, where did marriage come from? God created marriage, simple as can be. We're going to look at, I, I want to read uh, Genesis 2 to be reminded again. We're, we're talking real fundamental and basic, but we can't bypass this. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we'll start there. God creates everything in six days. Literally, God created everything out of nothing in six days. That really happened. It's literal. It's not figurative. It's not metaphorical. The Hebrew text is clear. The grammar and the syntax is clear. The references to time are clear. Evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning. Five times, God says in Genesis 1, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. You know what and it was so means? In uh, That's the Hebrew phraseology, and it was so. The theological interpretation that is, that's the way it really happened. Five times, God says in Genesis 1, that is the way it really happened. 
And so in Genesis 1, on the sixth day, the culmination of creation, God says, now it's time to make humanity, the human race. And God said, let us, as he's talking among himself as this Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us, the triune God of the universe, make humans, the human race, in our image, in our likeness, uh, as persons, as social beings, moral beings, religious beings, spiritual beings, all that is involved in God's image, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, verse 27, and God created humanity in his own image. How did he do it? In the image of God, he created humanity, specifically male and female. There it is. One man, one woman, together fully reflects the image of God by virtue of the attributes he has given us. So that's the general reference to how God created humanity, one man, one woman, and then he instituted and created marriage. That's my first point, God created marriage, and that's Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 24. Let's just read it. Here's specifically how God created the first two people and how he created the first wedding and the first, the institution of marriage itself God created. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So he made Adam first out of dirt and did a miracle and poof, there was Adam. And Adam was by himself. And it wasn't good for Adam to be alone because God never intended to just have one man. Why? Well, because he couldn't perpetuate the race by himself. Isn't that profound? When he died, nobody would be left. That's why it's not good for Adam to be alone, among other things. So God said, I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make the perfect complement for him. That's what that means. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Animals, names were given to them. Uh, but uh, there was not anybody to complement Adam, the end of verse 20. And so God is going to make that perfect compliment to Adam the man, and that's verse 21. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall on Adam, and that's exactly what happened. Then he fell asleep, and God took one of his ribs, really and literally, closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned or made or created the first woman from Adam's rib. That is impossible. It is impossible, and God does miraculous miracles that are impossible, doesn't he? That's what happened. It's a true story. It's history. So God makes the first woman out of a rib. Poof. Then he wakes Adam up because he, he brought the woman, this beautiful, flawless, sinless first woman, by the way, who didn't have any clothes on, brought her to Adam and wakes Adam up. Adam, you're going to miss your wedding if you don't wake up. So God did. Adam wakes up. He looks at her and says, whoa, man. I think that's the original Hebrew. But anyway, she's kind of cute. I'm not kidding. Verse 23. And no, I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm paraphrasing. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called, whoa, man. That's what it says. Because she was taken out of the man. There it is. God created the first marriage. God officiated the first Marriage, and it was between one man, one woman. God created marriage. Point two. So really, that needs to be addressed. Because that was the vote that was taken on Friday. It was a redefinition of marriage. Five justices, five fallen, depraved, corrupt, finite humans have no business redefining things that God has instituted himself and given a definition of. And marriage is... By the way, marriage as an institution came before the church. It came before the nation of Israel. It's the very beginning. It is the foundation of everything. That's why this is so important. 
So point number two, God defined marriage. After he created marriage, he defined marriage. That's verse uh, 24 in the same chapter. Look there. This is the definition. God created marriage, performed the first wedding, but he defined it as well, that the precedent shall go on. The way this first wedding happened and the nature of it and its uh, participants, this shall always be. God's pattern, and that's the definition, verse 24. For this cause, for this reason, the way that what you've seen happen today, one man, woman, before God, for life, as one, this shall always be for this cause. This is the standard. This is the precedent. This is to remain unchanged. This will be binding and universal for all of humanity. That's what that means, for this cause, for this cause. By the way, this passage is repeated about four or five times in the New Testament by Jesus himself, recognizing it is still, this is the way it is to be. So 4,000 years later, Jesus specifically taught on this passage and said, this is the definition of marriage. One man, one woman, for life, one flesh before God. And it was the mandate given to the church as well, quoted by the Apostle Paul. So it hasn't changed. It's been the same for 6,000 years. God gave this definition. Man can't usurp it, undermine it, change it, even though they try. Verse 24, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother. He shall cleave to his wife, singular singular man, singular woman, cleave to their wife. They come together as a married couple, a new entity an independent entity separate from all of their family, from their parents, and they shall become one flesh. That's God's decree. That's what he wants. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And that's the way it should be in a marriage relationship as it's blessed by God. So God created marriage in the very beginning and God defined marriage. He defined what it is. He said it's one man, one woman together before God as a covenant for life. Part of the definition. So there's actually part A and part B to the definition of marriage by God. So part one of the definition is right here. Part two of the definition actually can be found in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, where Paul, through the Holy Spirit, gives the directive to Christian husbands and Christian wives regarding their roles in marriage. And he says, wives, you need to submit to your husband in terms of function, not because you're inferior before God. That's your role. Your husband is the leader. You submit to him. You respect your husband. He is the leader. He is the head. You submit. It's the main imperative. You do that, you'll be a godly wife, a good wife, a blessed wife, a fulfilled wife. You'll be even more of a blessing to your husband if you do that and you live your life that way as a wife. Then he goes on to exhort the husbands, okay? Husband, you need to lead by loving. You need to be a loving leader and a provider, nurturing. He uses all those words. But the main imperative is love. You love your wife. She will gladly submit. She needs to submit anyway, but you, she will gladly submit. Wife, you submit to your husband, he will gladly love you. He needs to love anyway, but there's the beautiful harmony. It's really simple. And then he goes on and explains all that and the benefits of it. And at the very end, he says, actually, what I'm talking about is Christ and his body, Christ and the church. That's the bigger picture. So what Paul is saying and what he's unveiling to the church is, at the very definition of marriage, as God gave it, one man, one woman, it was to be a living matter, metaphor all throughout human history as a picture of a greater reality, and that is Christ's relationship with his church. And that's what Revelation 19 says, verse 9 and following. Someday in the future, there's going to be one last ultimate wedding. The Supreme Court justices, those five guys or five people, they haven't undermined God's definition of marriage because the greatest marriage of all is still yet to come. And it's in the future. It is Revelation 19. If you are a Christian, you will be there. You will be a part of it. Uh, you will be Christ's bride. It's going to be a beautiful and glorious event. It's going to be a perfect wedding. It's going to be a wedding, get this, that you're not all worried and uptight about and thinking about all that could go wrong because you aren't in control. God is. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I'm just going to let everything, you know, I'm going to let the bridegroom take care of everything. 
Well, he will, Jesus. He's preparing his wedding even now. Uh, so that's a glorious thing to read there in Revelation 19. And if you're a believer, you're going to be a part of it. You're going to be married eternally to Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says in Ephesians 5, that is one of the main purposes of marriage. One man, one woman before God for life is a picture of the greater reality of Christ committed to his church for all eternity. You undermine the basic definition of marriage here in this life, then you distort the ultimate picture God has intended between the definition of marriage with Christ to his church. That's probably one of the greatest ramifications or sins as a result. And nobody's talking about that. So God created marriage. He's the author of it. Number two, God defined marriage. One man, one woman for life. Picture of Christ. Number three, this is really comforting. You know, many of us, no doubt, around the world, believers felt like you got punched in the gut on Friday and you can't breathe. Maybe you haven't even recovered yet. The greatest institution in all of humanity has been destroyed or undermined. What do we do now? Well, we don't panic. God knows that happened. God knew it was going to happen. God is in control. Uh, marriage is his institution. Boy, that's where I get comfort. Marriage is his definition. It's his institution. He is in control of it. He is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He has a plan. It won't be thwarted. Not only is creation uh, marriage his creation, it's one of his most precious creations. Whoa. That's sobering to think of because God is a righteous God, a holy God, a jealous God. That's what Scripture says. God is jealous for that which is own and that which is sacred to himself. You don't tamper with marriage and get away with it. You're literally striking at the very eyeball of God Almighty. So God defends marriage. That's point number three. God defends marriage. I'll just give you a cursory overview and then we'll look at Hebrews 13, 14. Actually, we'll turn your finger to Leviticus chapter 20 first. Leviticus chapter 20. And then we'll go to Hebrews 13, 4 for this point. God created marriage. God defined marriage. God defends marriage. He's been defending it for 6,000 years now. He's not going to stop now. He was not blindsided or surprised by what happened. I wasn't surprised by what happened. I wasn't surprised by what happened because somebody told me what was going to happen. <laughs> and it was just obvious what was going to happen. The signs were all there. The evidence was there. God defends marriage. Um, so God establishes marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And then here's just uh, some high points throughout the Bible where God defends marriage. Genesis 19, uh, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it, it was filled with sexual immorality. Part of that immorality was men and men. Very clear from the text, very clear from the New Testament. And God warned Abraham and said, I'm going to wipe it out. It's uh, corrupted, it's immoral, and so he did. That's an act of God protecting the sanctity of marriage. Exodus chapter 20, God gave the Ten Commandments. So what is it, commandment number five? Um, you shall not, or uh, in the last part of the five, actually the last six that have to do with our relationship with other people, one of the commandments was uh, do not commit adultery. The positive way of saying that is be faithful to your wife. The understanding there was it's one man, one woman for life. That's marriage. If you go outside of your relationship with your one spouse and commit adultery, you are violating the institution of marriage. So that is, that's the main point of that commandment. It was protecting God-given monogamous marriage. That's what Exodus 20 is. And God's penalty, stated penalty in the Mosaic law from Exodus to Deuteronomy for committing adultery 
was the death penalty by stoning. That's what God said. So that lets us know, wow, that's a severe sin. Not all sins warranted the death penalty. And not only adultery warranted the death penalty, but adultery warranted the death penalty. That's how severe it was. That's how sacred marriage is and is to be protected. So that's Exodus chapter 20, God protecting marriage. Leviticus 18 has all these uh, sexual purity laws. Every one of them, the goal is to protect the sacredness of monogamous marriage. Most of those violations warranted the death penalty in Leviticus 18, the entire chapter almost. Then you go to the New Testament. The New Testament also vigorously shows God is defending, protecting the institution of marriage. Look at Hebrews 13.4. That's one of the, the clearest ones. Um, Hebrews 13.4 ends the epistle this way. Let marriage... Let, let marriage, and this is the first part of the verse, is let marriage the institution. Let the institution of marriage, and that means, as you understand from God's revelation in the Bible... This was clear. Monogamous marriage between one man, one woman, as God defined it and preserved it and gave it to Israel and to the church and all of humanity, by the way. If you have a marriage where two people aren't Christians and it's a man and a woman and they get married by the state, that's a legitimate marriage, even though they're not believers. So the command here is let marriage be held in honor among all. It's not just the church. Only Christians need to give honor and deference to the sacred institution of marriage. That is not what that's saying. It says, let the institution of marriage be honored by all. It is universal. It is binding. It is a command. Because I hear Christians say, well, we can't really talk to unbelievers about they need to honor and respect the institution of marriage as God gave it. And that's not true. That's not true, number one, because that's not what Hebrews 13.4 says. It says it needs to be honored by all. Like I said, there are millions of legitimate marriages in this country and around the world that aren't even between believers. If a Hindu man marries a Hindu woman and they make vows before the Creator, that's actually a legitimate marriage in light of Genesis 2. And if they're faithful to one another, it is. And so the command here is everybody needs to honor the institution of marriage. How do you do that? By not dishonoring the institution of marriage. Well, how do you dishonor the institution of marriage? Uh, abuse it, commit adultery, get involved in immorality, ignore it redefine it. There's a lot of ways to dishonor it. We're not supposed to do that. This is a scary thing. Let honor be held in honor, let marriage be held in honor among all. And get this, here's the second part of it. And he gets very specific. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage bed. Uh, marriage in my New American Standard is in italics because the word marriage is not in the Greek text. But a specific word is, and it's coitus. Look up coitus in your dictionary. It's the act of sexual intimacy between a man and a woman at the most intimate level. That's what the word is. And let coitus be undefiled. Let coitus be uh, employed and practiced in an undefiling manner, meaning only in keeping with the way God gave it and intended. Started in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where his husband and wife brought together, they were naked and unashamed. Those are the only parameters and guidelines by which it should be coitus practiced between one man, one woman who are married for life. If you do it otherwise, you're violating it, whether you are single whether you are uh, a polygamist, and there are plenty of those around the world today, or whether you're a heterosexual who gets around. Those are all violations of it. 
So it's, it's very specific. And here's the sobering part at the end of verse 4. For fornicators, those are people who engage in sexual immorality with total, utter disregard of God's definition and standard of marriage. The fast and the loose who are all being immoral. Who just sin against the institution of marriage. Fornicators, the sexually immoral, and adulterers, that's people who violate their wedding vows, will, God will judge. There it is. God will judge. That is a promise, not, and for us it's actually already happening. God's been judging fornicators and adultery since Genesis chapter 2. It's ongoing. So God is judging, which means God is protecting. There are consequences. Nobody's getting away with it. They're being judged whether they realize it or not. That's what's happening. God defends marriage. By the way, marriage is going to stay intact as an institution. Man, woman. I know sometimes we think pessimistically, oh, the way it's going, getting so bad, it's going to be obliterated like Whoopi. Professor Whoopi says it should be obliterated. But it's not going. It's going to stay intact. It's God's precious institution. We have promises and hints of that. I already told you Revelation 19, 6 through 9 shows that at the end of the age, marriage is still intact and the greatest marriage of all God to his church. Matthew 24, very important. Jesus says, when I come and return to the earth, when the son of man comes at the end of the age to return to the earth, God is going to look down and he says, there are going to be people on earth doing what they've always been doing since the days of Moses. And part of that is married and being uh, given in marriage. And Jesus means it's uh, traditional marriage at the time. That's the only definition Jesus knew. So even in the future, marriage is still going to be going on as a norm around the world, despite this temporary undermining from the Supreme Court. By the way, it's I say it's temporary in a, from an eternal perspective. It could actually get worse immediately in our country and around the world for a while. I mean, as you think about the decision that was made with respect to abortion, that was in 1973, and we're still there. We haven't improved it. We haven't overruled it. We haven't banned it and gotten rid of it. Babies keep dying, 57 million people. Uh, this ruling by the Supreme Court could be here in America to stay for quite a long time, and other corollary consequences could come as a result of it to become law as well that are detrimental and totally undermine the Bible and your Christian faith. We don't know. But what is encouraging is we know that God created marriage. He defined it. He will defend it. He is defending it. Number four. Another simple truth, Satan attacks marriage. I'll close with this one. Satan attacks marriage. First Peter 5.8 says that the devil is your enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to destroy and undermine uh, uh, deceptively anything with respect to God, Christ, the gospel, the Christian truth. And marriage is so foundational to God and his plan that that's always been a major target of Satan all throughout history. This is not the first time that marriage has been attacked or uh, redefined or targeted. False religions have been doing it for hundreds and thousands of years. Ephesians 6.11. Uh, let me read that. Oh, actually, I want to read, for, I'll close First Timothy 4.3, uh, that Satan is on the... T- Ephesians 6 just talks about how our warfare, be on the alert, watch out, the devil, he is uh, on the prowl, he's in the spiritual realm, you can't see him, he is attacking, he's attacking you, he's attacking you constantly, the church, the truth, we need to put on our armor, uh, we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. This issue is not on a human level. You don't need to go up and uh, egg the house of uh, Justice Anthony uh, Kennedy as a result of this. Uh, it's actually at a satanic 
supernatural, spiritual level of where this warfare is being fought, really. And truth is our weapon. Prayer is our weapon. Patience is our weapon. Waiting on God, trusting Him is our weapon. The weapons of spiritual warfare, not on a human level. But look at First Timothy 4, and, I'll, and then we'll uh, save the rest for next time on a practical follow-up. Now what do we do? Um, so the Apostle Paul says, and this was kind of the end of his ministry, and he's given some prophecies in both of these books, First and Second uh, Timothy. But in First Timothy 4, verse 1, he says, The Spirit explicitly says, this is a prophecy about the end times. Uh, the Spirit explicitly says that in uh, 2015, wow, we're in the Bible. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, the latter days, when is that? Now, some will fall away from the truth, from away from the faith. Anthony Kennedy, who made the ruling on this horrible, uh, evil decision on Friday, he's a professing Roman Catholic. And the position of the Roman Catholic Church is that marriage is between one man and one woman. They're not budging on that. So even the Catholic Church has a proper biblical definition of marriage. And so this judge is defying his own religion. In latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. See, there it is. This judge was deceived by who knows what in combination with his own sin. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In the end days, there's going to be demonic doctrines proliferating where we live by means of hypocrisy, of liars. Wow. They are liars. They're hypocritical. Their consciences are seared. They are, they don't listen to truth. Well, what are these demonic doctrines that are being propagated? Verse three, men who forbid marriage. There it is. People who, they're going to tamper with the institution of marriage. That's what that means. Regardless of what it looks like. Forced abstinence, polygamy. It comes in all forms. Satan and his demons are continually going to attack more and more the institution of marriage because it is so basic and so precious to God and His plan. Wow. Well, what do we do? Go to Second Timothy, just for now. Just something to be meditating upon. Um, Second Timothy chapter two says this. Here's our should be this should be our initial response until we keep praying and get God's leading and wisdom. Second um, Timothy two twenty three says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Don't don't wrangle with people about this issue and get dragged into a dogfight that's totally unedifying. It's not going to accomplish anything. Going back and forth on Facebook about this and blah blah blah. All you're going to do is produce quarrels. Don't do that if you're a Christian. Verse 24, the Lord's bondservant. This is, he's talking to Timothy as a pastor, but it applies to every Christian because we're all servants of the Lord. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. So don't be arguing with your grandma, your aunt, your uncle, your colleague at work about this issue. Don't argue about, you can talk and dialogue and be civil. It goes beyond that. Conversation over. No quarreling about it. You can't be argumentative about it, but be kind. Be patient to all, even people in favor of this decree that goes against the Bible. You need to be able to teach. You need to be patient with these people. We need to be gentle with these people. Somebody was telling me today, I don't even know how to respond because if I put anything on Facebook in opposition, I'm automatically stigmatized as a hater. That's true. Conversation has been so carefully nuanced and orchestrated if you respond negatively at all, immediately you're a homophobe, a hater, 
unloving. It's almost you can't even say anything. You've been pushed in the corner with a muzzle in your mouth. But we need to respond in gentleness. But we do need to speak the truth in love, though. So you can't be muzzled. You have to speak up. No, it's not about, Paul isn't saying just bend over, be a doormat, and appease everybody. That's not what he's saying. It's balanced with other scriptures. But this is a good caution. Don't respond and react emotionally. Think it through, pray it through, search the scriptures. It's case by case, depending upon who you're talking to. Talking to somebody on the street that you just met spontaneously is very different than a cousin you have who you have to see for the next 40 years on this issue. And then there are different contexts you'll be confronted with where you can speak up. I'm allowed to speak up, but right now, very dogmatically, at least so far, um, as a minister of God, and we thank God for that freedom and forum that we have. It's limited right now. We're in the minority, but isn't that the life of a Christian? Absolutely. And right now I have freedom, but who knows how long this freedom will last here in America. Thank God for all the shepherds in the pulpits around the world today doing the very thing, giving God's people God's truth on this issue. There is a voice. You're not going to hear it through mass media, television, radio, or at least television, and the perspective from God's Word. So we're thankful for the treasure of His truth and the beauty of His church and shepherds around the world and Bible-believing saints. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 Six three zero 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 nine.